In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. I'm Vincent Kearney, RTE's northern editor in Belfast. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. This week, political upheaval in London and Belfast as Boris Johnson grimly holds on to power and the DUP decide to walk away from power in Northern Ireland. As one advisor after another departs Downing Street, We'll assess how much longer Boris Johnson can hold out and what it means for the Northern Ireland Protocol negotiations. Speaking of which, there's First Minister Paul Given's dramatic resignation, Edwin Poots' abortive attempt to haul checks at the Northern Irish ports and DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson's threat to stay away from the executive. We'll also look at Boris Johnson's effort to unleash the benefits of Brexit and how those benefits have not yet been felt in the UK manufacturing sector, Professor David Bailey of the University of Birmingham. But first, to the political turmoil in Northern Ireland. Yesterday, the First Minister, Paul Given, announced he was going to resign amid his party's concerns over the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Today, Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, said his party would not re-enter an executive and work with Sinn Féin unless their concerns about the Northern Ireland Protocol were addressed. Here's what he had to say to our Northern Editor, Vincent Kearney, who we'll also be hearing from in a minute. We are very clear. Uh, we want to see the EU and the UK government reach an agreement and my preference would be that that happens before the Assembly election so that we can all seek a fresh mandate and form a government. But if agreement is not reached with, uh, between uh, the government and uh, the EU, if we haven't got a satisfactory outcome on the protocol, then I am clear the DUP will not be involved in forming a government in Northern Ireland until those issues have been satisfactorily addressed. Now, whatever concerns the Ulster Unionist Party, led by Doug Beatty, shares about the operation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, they certainly don't share the DUP's view that the best way to address them is to take down the Northern Ireland Executive. This is absolutely crazy, because we are moving into uh, a, a situation where we will end up having to come back with our tail between our legs. Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald said it's time for election. So in the absence of a functioning executive, an early election must be called and the people must have their say. SDLP leader Colm Eastwood expressed his outrage over the move. This is a stunt. It's nothing to do with the protocol. It's nothing to do with the concerns of real people out there. It's an absolute betrayal of ordinary people and it won't work in my view. And before the announcement was made about the resignation of the First Minister, Simon Coveney, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, warned if the Northern Assembly was brought down, it would be hard to put it back together again. And after those elections, I think no one should be any, under any illusions. Uh, putting an executive back together that can function will not be easy. And for a look at all of this, we're going to talk to our Northern Editor, Vincent Kearney. Vincent, how are you? 
Um, well, you know, um, fairly tired at this stage. It's, it's, it's been fairly hectic, you know, but sure, the, the, the world of politics in North mm. Ireland is rarely boring. So we've been hearing for quite some time, we were discussing with our colleague Conor McCauley last week about how the DUP was saying that there would be trouble if the protocol wasn't fixed. Then last week we heard Paul Givens say that February 21st was a key date. And obviously the 21st of February is a very significant date in terms of uh, what progress uh, will have been made or not made. And then yesterday Geoffrey Donaldson pulled the plug. And I feel the time is right now to apply the maximum leverage on the EU uh, to bring forward sensible proposals that will resolve this issue and do so quickly. And Paul Given resigned. So what happened to change the timing and why did he do it? Good question. As you said, Colm, that he'd been sent us for so long, somewhere, some had likened him to the, the boy who cried wolf because he, he was threatening at one point on a weekly basis, in fact, sometimes more than once a week, um, to pull down, in his words, the executive by instructing Paul Given to resign. And then when we heard that date of 21st of February, everyone just simply assumed that the deadline had been moved yet again. Now, the other parties in the Stormed Executive, Sinn Féin, Alliance, SDLP and the Ulster Unionists, they weren't surprised that, that Paul Given stepped down, but I think they certainly were surprised by the timing because that comment last week about the 21st of February, I think, lulled everyone into a false sense of security. Now, given what happened uh, in a very short period of time, this was clearly choreographed. You know, we had Edwin Poots, the former DUP um, leader, and Agriculture Minister Stormont instructing officials at Belfast and Lauren Ports to cease carrying out checks and goods coming into Northern Ireland. Uh, just over 12 hours later, speculation started to grow that the DUP was about to go one step further and instruct Paul Given to step down. He did that. Uh, and then uh, this morning, we, we, had, we had Jeffrey Donaldson up in the ante yet again by saying that unless the protocol is resolved, that even after the election, he may not agree to go back into power sharing. So clearly... Jeffrey Donaldson had a game plan. He, he, he had this up his sleeve. He knew he was doing it for some time, uh, but no one else guessed the timing of it. What's the objective, Vincent? Because there's a lot going on in Westminster at the moment. It's going to be hard to get what the DUP's demands are onto the political agenda. There's a lot going on in Europe with all that's happening in Ukraine. Again, very difficult to see why Europe, the Brussels would lend an ear to what the DUP's demands are. Does the DUP feel it's on the front foot and there's something to capitalise on here? And if so, what? What's the strategy? I think the DUP, they do believe they have an opportunity and that Boris Johnson's misfortune might be their opportunity because some within the DUP would see Boris Johnson desperately needing the support of his backbenchers. And the ERG, that hardline pro-Brexit group, are, is quite a sizable group within the Conservative Party. So I think the DUP are leaning on the ERG to put pressure on Boris Johnson. Uh, they would hope that the ERG might signal to Boris Johnson, look, if you want our support to remain as leader, if there is a, a contest ahead, then you need to move on the protocol. So some within the DUP, I think, do see that as a strategy. But but also, Colm, I'm told that the DUP uh, decision was based on a lot of their own internal research and internal polling in, in the past couple of months. Now, they, they acknowledge that they are fishing in a particular pool for votes, and that is the unionist uh, pool of votes, and they believe, uh, rightly so, I think, that the majority of people in Northern Ireland who voted for Brexit uh, were unionists. Now, of course, in Northern Ireland, there's a slight majority in favour of Remain, but they believe that those who voted Brexit most were unionists, and that's the votes they're targeting. Now, 
the feedback they're getting in those focus groups and the research groups is that the majority of unions, they say, um, have a real problem with the protocol and they want it to go. But it's also um, running alongside that column is the fact that they say they're picking up from the unionist electorate a disengagement from Stormont. They say that they're being told by their supporters that they don't believe the, the power sharing executive is working. And they all say they detected impatience that their grassroots, their votes, uh, their, their voters um, have become, as they say, disillusioned. Now, clearly, we have to add the caveat this is coming from DUP internal research, uh, nothing independent. So I think that Jeffrey Donaldson and the senior advisors around him believe that this is the right time to move because if they didn't move now, the Storm Assembly is due to dissolve on the 20th of March anyway in preparation for the election on the 5th of May. So if he'd waited until, uh, say, another three or four weeks, his critics would have said, let's come on, this, this this is simply a stunt. This doesn't have any credibility at all. So I think Donaldson himself felt that he was running out of room. Having threatened to do this for so long, he knew that the time frame for doing so was very, very small. So I think all, taking all those factors into consideration, the DUP strategists believe that this is the right time to press the button. And of all things, Vincent, on which to put pressure on Boris Johnson, the operation of the protocol and the checks, etc. That that what Edwin Poots is doing would seem to tie in with the thinking of the British government. They've given them a certain degree of political cover to do so. But on the issue of the first minister's resignation, there was quite a strong statement from Brandon Lewis. In fact, the top paragraph is in bold by comparison to the rest of it, saying it's disappointing, extremely disappointing. Uh, indeed, and that of course marries the kind of criticism uh, coming from the Taoiseach. I've been very consistent for a long, long time about the absolute importance of um, preserving, nurturing and developing the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement. And that involves the Executive and the Assembly. Uh, and I've always been very critical any time the Assembly has been pulled down or the Executive has been pulled down because I think it's not serving the people of Northern Ireland. Uh, when I was up in Northern Ireland in recent years, the people want their public representatives uh, to represent them um, in, the, in the assembly and in the executive. They want politics to work for them. Um, and no one party uh, should have a veto over whether an executive exists. A degree of surprise at the timing and also clear anger um, from Dublin and from London. But uh, Geoffrey Donaldson is clearly trying to put pressure on the British government here. So he's trying to put pressure on Northern Secretary Brandon Lewis because Geoffrey Donaldson clearly feels let down. From September uh, last year, Geoffrey Donaldson became increasingly confident that the British government was going to accede to his wishes and trigger Article 16. In fact, come around about November, it was quite clear that Donaldson and others around him had a bit of a spring in their step and in off-the-record briefings they were saying they were quite confident that the British government's here and they were growing increasingly confident that uh, David Frost was listening to them and was willing to trigger Article 16. Well, here we are in February and there's no sign of it being triggered. So I think Geoffrey Donaldson um, felt let, let down. He, he believed that um, he'd been given assurances that weren't, weren't followed through on. So part of this strategy clearly flagging up the fact that now that even after an election he might not agree to go into the storm and uh, partial an executive, that's deliberately aimed at, at piling the pressure onto the British government in these negotiations with the EU because I, I think Donaldson sees this almost as, a, as the last throw of the dice. He desperately needs some kind of a victory on the protocol. We're coming to the elections on the 5th of May. He needs something he can sell to his voters because if what his critics will say, despite all his statements and despite all the pressure, he hasn't actually made the British government move and he hasn't you know, wrung any further concessions from, from the EU. So this is a big gamble by Geoffrey Donaldson.
as you say, it's a big call because the or else in all of this is, and the problem that's been highlighted is, is that there will be instability in Northern Ireland unless you move on the Northern Ireland Protocol. But the people who have to deal with the consequences of that instability are the electorate on whom he's relying for votes. It doesn't fit in with an earlier strategy of the DUP to try and make itself unionism with wider appeal, a process that was begun under Peter Robinson. Uh, absolutely, yes. Uh, on this one, th- th- this will ag- again polarise and the election campaign is likely to polarise even further because the, the DUP, the one thing that really will terrify them in terms of an election is Sinn Féin returning as the, the, the number one party, the top party for the first time because that would mean Michelle O'Neill would be in line to become First Minister with Geoffrey Donaldson if he succeeds in being elected to, uh, to the Assembly um, in line to be Deputy First Minister. Now, we know there, there are many within the ranks of the DUP who would not countenance that. They, they would feel very, very uncomfortable going into a relationship with Sinn Féin as First Minister. Now, when Geoffrey Donaldson has been asked about this several times, and he has pointed out that, you know, the name of the party, he said the clues in the title, we are the Democratic Unionist Party. So he says he will sit down and he'll look at all the ramifications and implications, whatever the result of the election is. But there are those within the DUP um, who are, as I say, quite terrified uh, of the prospect of finishing a second largest party in Northern Ireland right. for the very first time. And, and, and many of their critics will say that's precisely what this strategy is aimed at. Well, well that's, what, to, that's what I'm going to ask you. Scared of voters out. And, and but is is there also another thing that there is you know that it's very hard to argue that you wouldn't work the Good Friday Agreement and go into government. So you've got this issue of the protocol you can put down as a principled reason of another kind why you wouldn't enter into a government if that risk of Sinn Fein being the larger party still pertained after the next election. Uh, that, that that's true, and, and, and there's no doubt. Take take the protocol off the table. Uh, if that was actually resolved, there's still a lot of issues uh, to be resolved between uh, the DEP and Sinn Féin, the other side of an election, particularly if Sinn Féin are the largest party, that might make it, that will undoubtedly make, in fact, make it much more difficult for the DUP to go into that relationship and to go back into power sharing. But when you put the protocol into the mix, and particularly because Geoffrey Dawson has made such a big thing of getting pro- uh, progress, I mean, there are a number of occasions when it was felt he had a bit of wriggle room that he could have given a little bit when, when, when Europe produces proposals uh, offered to reduce the checks by 80%. Um, some felt that he should have grabbed that as a, as a win but at that stage he didn't he came out actually very hard against that um, so he has set his face uh, against what's been proposed so far he has set the bar himself very very high and the problem for him from is the closer it gets to an election um, the more he needs some kind of movement and that's why he's putting this pressure on the British government and the hope that if he can't get movement in terms of an agreement he can perhaps force their hand into triggering article 16 which he could then sell to his electorate as a big win Is this part of the difficulty of the DUP's relationship with the ERG? I mean, the power of the DUP within the Conservative Party is that the DUP's view on matters pertaining to Brexit in Northern Ireland are treated as a litmus test. In a way, if the DUP can wear something, then the ERG can can, can wear it too. But by the same token, the DUP's room to compromise in a way that would suit the business community and some of its own electorate within Northern Ireland some of that power with an ERG would be lost if they were seen to be less than purist on Brexit. Yes, absolutely. Particularly because up until now they've taken such a hard line. You know, they, they've marched in step with the ERG. They, they've, they've been, as I say, uncompromising and always demanding more. So, I mean, we've spoken 
column in recent months to a number of unionist uh, business people who say that they actually find that the protocols working for them. And if you if you go out on the streets of Belfast and you talk to people about issues uh, that they're at the top of their wish list for sorting, very few of them mention the protocol. Usually they mention the health service to you. But in terms of political unionism, uh, Jeffrey Donaldson is making this the big issue because um, he sees pr- protocol and that link between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom it, it clearly is identity. It's a very strong sense of identity for him and for, for unionists uh, and that's something he's trying to use again to galvanise his own support base, to try to drive people to the polls, to give him the, the, the mandate to face down Europe on the protocol and also of course then to uh, emerge as the number one party in North Ireland once again. Okay, well, as we heard from the Irish Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, and also from Doug Beattie, and I'm sure a range of other people, the Ulster Unionist Party leader, that when all of this is over, the next election, Stormont still has to be put back together again, which will be no easy task. Is there a danger that the electorate for whom the protocol is not a priority will not reward the DUP on this, first of all? Like, what's the best electoral outcome the DUP can hope for and how can it affect their leverage beyond Northern Ireland? It, it is, as you said earlier, a high-risk strategy. It, it is. And clearly, I mean, the best I can hope for is to remain as the largest party. They've done their own number crunching. Um, they carried out their own internal uh, research. Uh, their own polling, and they believe that, that their support remains fairly strong in key areas. Uh, but in terms of other voters, uh, well, the other members of the Stormont Executive, well, the executive that no longer exists, that's Sinn Féin, the Alliance, the SDLP and Ulster Unionists, they will hope that the voters will punish the DUP for this rather than reward them. So the problem for Geoffrey Donaldson is that every problem that arises between now and the election, if it's a problem within the health service, if it's a problem within the economy, they will blame the DUP for each and every one of those problems in the hope of, uh, as I say, encouraging voters to punish them rather than reward. And that's why Geoffrey Donaldson needs something to happen quickly. All right. Okay. Thanks very much, Vincent. Okay, go on. All Cheers. Thanks a million. So, Sean, that's what was playing out in Northern Ireland that we heard there from our Northern editor, Vincent Kearney. How have things been going in the Commons? Because there was a certain amount of political cover afforded to Edwin Poots and his decision not to conduct these checks. That was the subject of debate in the House of Commons, was it? Yes, it was. I mean, the, these events that happened on Wednesday in Belfast were catching the British a little bit by surprise, at least according to the Prime Minister's spokesman, although uh, his uh, comments that they weren't expecting these moves from the DUP uh, met with hearty snorts of derision uh, and all kinds of Twitter reaction as well, um, pointing out, for example, that Liz Truss had been saying the previous week that uh, it wouldn't be a good idea uh, if they were to take unilateral action, uh, the DUP that is, uh, and uh, interfere with uh, her own negotiations with Mara Shevchevich. However, uh, that, as you've heard, uh, went ahead. So uh, on uh, Thursday morning, George Eustace, the uh, Agriculture and Environment Minister who deals with SPS business in general, uh, got in touch with Edwin Poots to find out what was going on and try and see what kind of political uh, arrangements they could come up with. Uh, He made a statement to the House of Commons, which basically said it's up to the Northern Ireland guys to operate the uh, operational aspects of the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, and we don't want to get involved uh, and we're a little bit surprised by what had happened. That was uh, treated with hearty derision by Peter Kyle, who's the new-ish Labour Party spokesperson 
on Northern Ireland. He's a, here's a flavour of what he said in that debate. In the last week, both the Foreign and Northern Ireland secretaries said that the Irish sea border checks are a matter for the Northern Ireland executive. The protocol was signed into international law by the UK government, and now they are bystanders as their deal falls apart, pathetically claiming it's all somebody else's responsibility. Just think of the implications. Is the message that the Welsh Welsh Senate or Scottish Parliament can break international law too, and the government will have nothing to say about it? It's another piece of vandalism committed by against our union by a reckless government too busy partying to notice what's going on out there in the real world. A few moments ago, the Prime Minister's spokesman said that they've been caught completely unaware by developments. Are they kidding? I don't know anyone that didn't see this coming. And the Foreign Secretary is today negotiating with our EU partners Does the Secretary of State believe that the events that are unfolding are going to strengthen her hand in negotiations as she seeks to reassure our partners that we are credible partners that will stick to our end of negotiations and commitments? Last year, the Environment Secretary wrote to the Northern Ireland Executive instructing them that work on the border control posts must progress without delay. He used his powers to do so. The same principles stand today. The same Stormont Minister, the same Conservative Environment Secretary, the same Prime Minister's deal, but a completely different interpretation of parliamentary sovereignty and government responsibility. That is a total U-turn. Can he tell us what has changed the government's position between now and then? Now, George Eustace uh, obviously came back uh, to respond to this. He was responding to a lot of questions and statements in this debate. Uh, This is what he had to say in giving a a further, uh, more properly filled out answer uh, to uh, the charges raised by Peter Kyle. Now, the, the principle behind the Northern Ireland Protocol was to try to protect the provisions of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. That agreement uh, requires you to protect uh, all communities uh, within Northern Ireland. It's built on the principle of consent of all communities and built on the principle uh, of power sharing. And while he's absolutely right that the United Kingdom takes the lead role when it comes to international agreements, and that's why my right honourable friend, the Foreign Secretary, is is leading discussions uh, with her opposite number in the European Commission now uh, to resolve uh, some of these issues, It is also the case that when it comes to SPS and agri-food issues, those matters are devolved to the Northern Ireland Executive. Now, for reasons I explained earlier, Edwin Poots had sought an agreement of the Northern Ireland Executive or a discussion with the Northern Ireland Executive following a particular EU audit that took place last year, which implied that individual passenger cars should sometimes be searched Uh, to look for food items in people's personal luggage. And his concern was that this uh, would cause difficulties for the very principles of the uh, Belfast Good Friday Agreement. And that is why he says he'd sought some authority from the Northern Ireland uh, Executive. And he's made clear that it's still his intention to to bring a discussion before the Northern Ireland Executive uh, on this uh, this very matter. Now, he uh, raises the issue about whether... um, you know, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland could use reserve powers to issue directions and so on. 
You know, the bar for such an intervention is high, as he'll understand, and rightly so. And it's also entirely unnecessary at this stage. The, the checks are actually continuing. There is no uh, change at the moment. Uh, yes, a direction has been uh, issued. Officials in DERA are taking their own uh, legal advice as accounting officers uh, on elements uh, related to that. Uh, and what we uh, very much hope is that, uh, in the first instance, the implementation uh, of this can indeed be delivered um, in, in its right and proper place through the uh, Northern Ireland Executive. Now, this question of a letter uh, goes back to um, last year, a, a letter of direction to civil servants to carry on uh, working even though they'd been asked not to do so. And that was raised by the former Northern Ireland Secretary, Julian Smith. Julian Smith. I support the government's um, negotiations with the EU on improving the protocol, but would my right honourable friend just clarify that for those civil servants in Northern Ireland implementing the current rules, that his letter still stands. We cannot be a country uh, that agrees an agreement and then uh, sta doesn't stand behind it. In the absence of the executive, which looks to be in a difficult position today, the British government has to back this letter of the 1st of April and support those civil servants in Northern Ireland doing the checks. Hilary Benn from the Labour Party also pointed out that uh, whilst ministers might be reluctant to get involved in Northern Ireland, uh, or, or in the words of uh, George Eustace, the bar had not been uh, met for getting involved, he pointed out that there was a specific clause in the 1998 Act implementing the Good Friday Agreement uh, which said that if anything was being done by Northern Ireland ministers that conflicted with Britain's international law obligations, then uh, there was a, that was specific grounds to get involved by Westminster ministers. Here's what he had to say. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Madam Deputy Speaker. It should be a cause of great sadness to all of us that the act of leaving the European Union continues to cause such business and political instability in Northern Ireland. Now, I listened very carefully to what the Secretary of State had to say, and I think what he was arguing was that while it may indeed be the case that the administration of SPS checks is a matter for the Northern Ireland Executive, the legal obligation under the withdrawal agreement of the Northern Ireland Protocol to ensure that checks are done falls upon the UK government. So if the checks do stop, does the government intend to use its powers under Section 26 of the Northern Ireland Act 1998? He talked about a high bar. Can just very briefly read him what it says. If the Secretary of State considers that any action proposed to be taken by a minister or Northern Ireland department would be incompatible with any international obligations, he may by order direct that the proposed action should not be taken. And the international law position of the UK was confirmed by Robert Buckland, who until a few months ago uh, was serving as the Lord Chancellor uh, in Boris Johnson's government. That's one of the highest law officers in the land. He was Justice Minister. He'd been Solicitor General in governments as well. So a very experienced QC and very senior office holder uh, in the legal side of the state. This is what he had to say. Sir Robert Buckland. Madam Deputy Speaker, my, 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 my right honourable friend is quite right to characterise this as a devolved matter. And the government, far from making a U-turn, has been very clear about it and consistent. However, 
the international law dimension of this and the obligations of the United Kingdom, United Kingdom government are also very clear. Would it not been better for uh, the Minister in the Northern Ireland Executive to have actually told my right honourable friend before he'd made the decision to order this, uh, make this direct directive, because of the obvious sensitivities and the vital importance of allowing my right honourable friend, the Foreign Secretary, to conduct her negotiations with uh, Commissioner Sefcovich in, in as smooth and unimpeded a way as possible. The way that we will deal with this is through negotiation and resolution at international level, and therefore we need to avoid avoid the elephant traps that unilateral action presents. So it was quite clear in that debate that the government knew what their international law obligations uh, were and are, but don't actually want to get involved and were hoping that the lawyers in Belfast would get them off the hook by giving the civil service legal advice that they could continue on working and doing the checks uh, as normal. Uh, and then, of course, we've subsequently had a court intervention in Belfast as well. Right. Tony, in, in Brussels, we had a strongly worded statement yesterday for us, we record this on Friday, from Mara Shevchevich, and he said that we see the recent instruction by the Northern Irish Minister for Agriculture to cease sanitary and phytosanitary checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland as being very unhelpful, which is, I think, word of the week this week. It creates uncertainty and unpredictability for the people and businesses in Northern Ireland. These checks are necessary for Northern Ireland to benefit from access to the EU's single market for goods. Basically, these checks are what the operation of the protocol hinges on, and in turn, the entire agreement, the withdrawal agreement, hinges on that. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a very carefully worded statement by Maro Shevchevich, and that was after he had spoken by video conference to Liz Truss, the British Foreign Secretary, who Sean mentioned there, um, I just to pick up on what Sean said, Liz Truss also said in an interview in, in Belfast when she was there that uh, it was a matter for the Northern Ireland executive if Edwin Putz were to suspend checks. Um, but nonetheless, uh, this is what Maro Shevchevich had to say after he met uh, Liz Truss by way of a statement. There had been a statement on Thursday morning from the Commission. It took a bit of time for the Commission to respond. And I think they were trying to assess what level they would gauge the temperature in terms of their response because, yes, this is a serious uh, issue. It also is serious if the UK is appearing to give cover to Edwin Putz to suspend these checks, although, as Sean was saying, the UK was kind of rowing back um, in the day that followed. Uh, but, you know, this comes at a pretty tricky time for the whole process of negotiations between Brussels and London uh, on trying to alleviate the burden of the protocol. Uh, and, you know, if there's a sense that, you know, th the spanners are being thrown in the works deliberately by the DUP for electoral reasons, and if the UK government isn't slapping them down somewhat sternly, then it does create a climate of, you know, this is a, a, a process of perpetual crisis and, you know, we're not really going to get anywhere, certainly before the Assembly elections kick off. Right. And has there been any sense on your end of things from people you've been talking to that to what degree do they see the fingerprints of the British government on this, at least to a certain degree with a level of coordination? Do they view the DUP as an independent actor in this or do they think that maybe political cover was agreed in advance before these things happened? What's, what's the kind of suspicion in Brussels? Yeah. 
Well, there, there's certainly a suspicion. You know, if you look at the kind of amb- ambient uh, goings on around the protocol and the British government's hostility to the protocol that we've been reporting on for the past year, and how more and more the D- the British government appear to be aligned with DUP thinking and rhetoric on the protocol, there is a lot of uh, irritation. Actually, it's more than irritation. I mean, people are frankly fed up in Brussels and member states. One official I spoke to said that they were just beyond outrage at, at the UK's antics, including that that video that we talked about last week, uh, that was put out there by the by the Foreign Office, basically attacking the protocol. It it could have been edited and scripted by the DUP themselves. It was a very you know selective view of the protocol, and then there was certainly a suspicion that when Liz Truss said that well, we, we won't intervene if Edwin Putz decides to suspend the checks. You know, it's not exactly uh, a ringing endorsement of the UK trying to fix things um, at, at the level of the negotiations. Um, the, I mean, the negotiations are ongoing. The, again, you know, there were technical talks this week ahead of that video conference between Mara Shevchevich and Liz Truss. She was meant to come to Brussels, but of course she had COVID. And I'm told that there is a lot of focus on customs trying to reduce the volume and you know weight of customs formalities and declarations to a, a level that the UK can live with. Of course, the EU has put its own proposals out there um, in October about reducing customs formalities, they say, by about 50%. Um, so there is a lot of work at technical level, uh, but you would have to say in the current climate for them to get an agreement by the end of February, which is the sort of unofficial deadline, or even to have something to decide upon on the 21st of February, which is where there's going to be a big joint committee meeting, which is kind of a crossroads for this whole process. It's hard to see in the current climate with Boris Johnson in such trouble, with Liz Truss being touted as a contender for leadership. She'll have to keep the ERG and Tory backbenchers on board. Hard to see her making a big gamble at the moment to to reach an agreement. And throughout all of this, Sean, Brandon Lewis released a statement on the other matter of turmoil in Northern Ireland, the decision by Paul Given to resign as First Minister. He said the British government remains fully committed to fixing the problems with the protocol, which suggests its attitude is the protocol is there to stay and there are fixable issues with it. They at least invest some hope and a commitment to future effort in the discussions that are going on between Liz Truss and Mara Shevchevich. Yes, I mean, the, the the British government official line has never gone so far as to say we have to abolish uh, the protocol. They want to keep a protocol in place. Now, as we've discussed before, it's about how much of the existing protocol gets changed, uh, whether you look at the practical issues. And in that uh, Shevchevich statement uh, on Thursday, he was talking about a laser focus on practical challenges raised by Northern Ireland stakeholders. Uh, that will be your paperwork and, and physical checks aspect of it, or the more maximalist position espoused by Lord Frost, who uh, wanted to entirely hollow out the protocol until there was nothing left but an outer skin, uh, uh, if you like, uh, of, of something marked protocol. Uh, whilst even he recognised and said very clearly at, at Tory party conferences, there has to be uh, some kind of a protocol legal arrangement governing the arrangement uh, for the placing of goods on the market in Northern Ireland for all of the other reasons that we've talked about uh, ad nauseum uh, on this uh, podcast. So you know, the British are, are in that, that space of how much change is there uh, to be negotiated out of the uh, protocol and at what point do they 
decide, okay, enough uh, talking has been done. We'll take what's on the table and declare victory and, and move on. Right. So, yeah, they're not trying to pull the whole thing down. But I thought, getting back to that uh, Shevchevich uh, statement yesterday, one of the interesting things there was uh, how much uh, attention he paid to the protocol, saying, calling it the cornerstone of the withdrawal agreement and hammering home that it's an international agreement and the UK government has responsibility to uphold its legal obligations and saying by respecting our international obligations and living up to responsibilities, that's how we build trust and maintain it uh, now and into the future. Right. So again, putting the, the pressure back on the British government over their international obligations, which they have not resiled from, they're just saying actual implementation of those uh, SPS checks uh, rests with uh, the Northern Ireland executive. But Sean, the DUP has said its stated ambition by having its first minister resign by not implementing these checks is to create conditions whereby maximum pressure is being applied. What pressure? On whom? To what end? Good, good question. Good question. I mean, I would have thought the time for maximum pressure was last October. Uh, when you had a Conservative Party conference, when the threat was there, when the, the uh, Unionist parties uh, were over in Manchester, in the, the, the fringes of that conference, making their case uh, against the protocol, uh, that was probably the, the period of maximum leverage. It probably started to peter out by the middle to end of November, and we saw that change of policy which again we discussed at the time, that probably led to Lord Frost's departure from government, that the maximalist position was losing ground. So I don't know how much leverage is left now. The uh, DUP uh, had been threatening to have early elections or pull down the, the uh, assembly government. Uh, you know, they we're getting so close. To, I mean, the, the idea of a, an end February deadline was to accommodate Northern Ireland uh, elections, which are coming up uh, at the beginning of May anyway. So effectively, from March mm. onwards, the political parties were going to be gone off the scene in, the, in Northern Ireland. You weren't going to right. get much change through anyway. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, he's brought it forward by a couple of weeks. I don't know how that uh, exerts more pressure because... The, all the pressure in Westminster is about Boris Johnson and his survival, and nothing, absolutely nothing, is getting through uh, beyond that point. Anything that can save uh, Boris Johnson is getting uh, to the head of the queue. Anything that's uh, any way an, an irritation or distraction is getting pushed aside. But also, there's just so many other stories happening. We had a week's worth of political news happening in, in uh, London yesterday, Thursday, uh, and most of those stories didn't make it, and they were all... Crackers. I mean, this stuff about the uh, 2% fall in living standards uh, happening this year because of uh, inflation. Uh, extraordinary economic news, and yet hardly anybody remembers any right. of that because, again, we're all talking about uh, Partygate and the resignation of, of advisors. Yeah, good time to bury a story which would, I suppose, call into question the, the timing of this move if you wanted maximum attention and maximum leverage from it. Tony, on that, I mean, I suppose the best end this could be used for, if if you were to, 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 to phrase it that way, would be to point to, well, here's your instability. This is what the protocol has created. And in order to solve it, you must address the unionist demands. And so if the yeah. EU purports to want to protect the Good Friday Agreement, protect peace and stability in Northern Ireland, here's an issue of instability which they must come and solve. Maybe that's the thinking behind it. Yeah, I mean, there, there's 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 a lot of truth in that uh, and that opens up another uh, question which is around Article 16 and there's a, a very interesting, even 
plausible, I would say, narrative that I picked up in the last day or two here in Brussels that if you think about it, you know, they were going to trigger Article 16 last November to override key provisions of the protocol. The EU kind of bore its fangs and threatened uh, unofficially that there could be a trade war. The UK backed down and even though you know David Frost and Liz Truss, his successor, have mentioned Article 16 since then, you'll notice that Liz Truss hasn't mentioned Article 16 very much recently. She talks about safeguards. And if you think about it, if, if Article 16 has a very sharp uh, downside to it in the form of a trade war, um, why trigger Article 16 when ongoing chaos will will do the trick for you? Uh, you know the t- the talks will go on. They'll be paused during an election campaign. We suspect. Um, then you've got Jeffrey Donaldson's threat of of doing nothing to enter enter the executive after the election. Then you've got the marching season. Then you've got the August break. Then you've got the Tory party conference going up, and so on and so on. And so there is a view taking shape in Brussels that. This is a, a kind of a, 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 a subterranean way of triggering Article 16. Just keep a sense of crisis and instability going um, and avoid the pain of Article 16 in, in the process. And if you look at it, you know, this is a, obviously a pessimistic, cynical view. If you look at the, the potential for a Conservative Party leadership contest, if Liz Truss is going to be a key contender... She's going to want to keep those Tory backbenchers and the European Research Group on board. That means she's not going to take any big risk and, you know, reach for a deal pretty much on the EU's terms on the protocol. But at the same time, she's not going to take a big risk either by triggering Article 16 and, you know, potentially having a trade war with the European Union at a time of rising living standards. So, you know, all, all of this is being seen rather cynically in Brussels as... Um, you know, a, a form of Article 16 without actually pulling the trigger. Right. Our colleague Conor McCauley put in for a statement from the Department of Agriculture in Northern Ireland just on the, the Edwin Booth's move to suspend checks or not to implement checks. There's a bit of a, a divergence between Edwin Poots and the civil servants and his, his department on this. But it, what, what he did get back was the issue of the ability to implement the checks. Even if they were to try to implement the checks, the resources don't seem to be in place to do it. And the statement he got said, recruitment of additional staff and delivery of permanent infrastructure have been paused until the current discussions between the UK government and the EU conclude, at which points the requirements will become clear, which can be taken one of two ways. Either A, it's an optimistic statement about they hope that the need for checks will be reduced because agreement can be reached, or B, they can't see the political backing being there to implement those checks. Is there a sense of that from Brussels? Is this part of what's been going on for a while where the EU was concerned that there was no evidence of the infrastructure being there to give them to understand that the withdrawal agreement was being implemented in good faith, at least as far as the Northern Ireland Protocol is concerned? Yeah, well, the, the first place to go for that answer is is the, the famous audit that was carried out by European Commission officials in June of last year and which uh, was not published. It was not even circulated to member states because it was a draft audit. And this was an audit into how the border control posts and and the whole regime for checking on food and, and live animals was going on in, you know, how the protocol was operating on the ground, despite all the political turmoil of last year. 
Um, and this was a draft audit that wasn't circulated to member states because they were waiting for the UK's response to it. But lo and behold, the Department of Agriculture placed it uh, for all to see in the Library of the Northern Ireland Assembly on the 28th of January. Now, I've been going through this audit in detail, and it's absolutely explosive because it it reveals an absolute litany of holes and malfunction and uh, complete uh, non-application of huge parts of the protocol uh, in, in the past year. Uh, and one of the key findings is the chronic shortage of staff. And Edwin Putz has been responsible for that. He has blocked staff recruitment. They need 53 uh, environmental health officers, like a small regional location like Northern Ireland, finding 53 environmental health officers. Um, there is 70% shortfall, 17% shortfall in the number of vets needed to carry out these controls. Uh, there, there's been a whole range of problems with lorries that were supposed to get checked at border control posts that didn't turn up, uh, um, export health certificates that were just riddled with inaccuracies, stuff landing at supermarkets and distribution centres that with stuff that hadn't been properly labelled, and also kind of worryingly for the EU, uh, evidence that stuff was going across the border into the south that hadn't been checked at border control posts. And that really gets to the heart of the EU's concerns. We need to know what's entering the single market. And this one audit that was carried out, even at a time when grace periods were uh, in effect. So in other words, this audit re revealed these glaring inconsistencies and uh, dysfunctions at a time when the full spectrum of checks and controls aren't even being applied. Um, so in the one hand, what was Edmund Putz doing putting this uh, audit into the Northern Ireland Assembly Library, if indeed he did, and it's, it was the Department of Agriculture who announced it, so we assume he knew about it. Um, obviously, he could burnish his credentials by showing through this audit that he was blocking uh, recruitment, therefore he was frustrating the work of the protocol. That'll get him some votes. On the other hand, this is a an explicit... Um, travesty of how the protocol is supposed to work according to the way it's it's written and that will really concern M M member states who have given Mara Shevchevich a mandate to you know to effectively um, you know uh, fix the protocol uh, to the UK's liking um, so it's a bit of a double-edged sword and um, and it also shows the enormous resources in terms of manpower in terms of a whole regime of checks um, that have to be in place for the for this thing to work. As we just mentioned with Sean there, Tony, the the pressure on on the on the British government to implement the uh, the protocol, we we have something of a precedent, you think? Yeah, well, you know, in in twenty twenty, when you know that was the transition period, the the protocol uh, had not had not yet taken effect, and that was the time when the European Union was looking at London to say okay, we need to start building these border control posts, we need to start hiring staff, we need to make sure the system is in place for the 1st of January 2021. And uh, already Edwin Putz in the spring of uh, 2020 was blocking uh, recruitment uh, by the Department of Agriculture. This has been well documented. Um, the Northern Ireland executive took a collective decision that those uh, checks and controls that were happen that would happen at border control posts those border control posts would have to go ahead you would have to get planning permission you'd have to put out tenders to get them built and in a, in, in essence edwin putz was was overruled um, by the northern ireland attorney general at the time um, 
And then in September, when the tenders were to go out to companies to start building these border control posts, Edwin Putz again tried to stop those tenders going out. And it put uh, his senior officials in a very difficult position because they had to uh, abide by law, which in this case is international law. Uh, And in the end, on that occasion, when Edwin Putz was going against the grain of what had to be done in the protocol, George Eustace, who Sean mentioned there uh, in terms of the House of Commons intervention this week, he wrote um, to the Northern Ireland Agriculture Department in very direct terms saying, you have to go ahead, you have to get these tenders off the ground, you have to start work on these border control posts. Interestingly, at the time, he didn't write to Edwin Putz, he wrote to Dennis McMahon, who is the permanent secretary at the uh, Department of uh, Agriculture in Northern Ireland, probably in, a, in some way so, so as to give Edwin Putz a little bit of political distance um, between the decision to start these border control posts uh, and his own political views right. uh, as, as a DUP minister. Just to come back in on, on uh, Edwin Poots and that uh, audit that Tony was talking about, it did crop up in the Commons debate on Thursday when George Eustace uh, was talking about his discussion with uh, Edwin Poots and how uh, Mr Poots had been trying to get a discussion at the Northern Ireland Executive about the audit that had taken place by the EU uh, because he said that audit implied that individual passenger cars should sometimes be searched to look for food items in people's personal luggage and that Mr Poots's concern was that this would cause difficulties for the very principles of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. So yes, that that audit from last year uh, does seem to have played directly into the events of this week. Right. The first I heard of this audit was back in October when the EU published its proposals on how to fix the protocol. And in one of the proposals, these were what they call non-papers, buried in that paper somewhere was a line saying that, you know, if we are going to develop a bespoke version of the protocol, which is what the UK command paper essentially wanted, then the precondition has to be that the UK comply with all of the data and IT systems requirements that that we have been waiting for for a couple of years now, but also that it comply with the findings and recommendations of the recent EU audit on how the protocol was working. Now, that, that was buried in this paper, and I I actually chased up the Commission to see if that audit was public, and they said, no, it's not public. Um, but it was clear that, that the audit informs the EU's thinking as they have gone into these technical talks with the UK government uh, over the past couple of right. months. So there's an argument that the, the talks might have progressed more if these checks had been implemented or at least the preparation was, was made for them. Yeah, I mean, okay. essentially the, 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 the EU is saying we, we can find ways of re- reducing the volume of checks on SPS and, and customs formalities. But we need but to create trust. But in return, you, you have to have, yeah, you have to create trust. But also, we need those border control posts there. We need to make yeah. sure the system is working, that the staff are hired, and, and that the IT systems are talking to each other. Giving up on the hunt for the rogue hang sandwiches in the boot of, of your Fiat Uno uh, is an easy giveaway for the EU uh, to say, look, we've uh, made concessions here. So uh, you can see how um, on the British side they'd be a bit sceptical about things like that and, and accommodating them. But yeah, in, in terms of the overall reduction in checks, these figures of 80% uh, reductions that are contained in the EU proposals, maybe some of that is in areas that nobody really expected to be checked anyway, like searching individual hand baggage for bits of food. Right. Sean, you were mentioning there how hard it was for this 
story, the political story in Northern Ireland as it relates to the protocol to cut through onto the political agenda in Westminster. And that's because Boris Johnson's future is in danger. In the past 24 hours alone, five aides from Downing Street gone. Uh, you know, a mixture of resignations or where they did they jump, where they pushed. But I suppose taking them at face value, they are resignations. It can be spun after the fact, perhaps, that this is the Prime Minister handling the issue. But it still doesn't look good. It's AIDS leaving Downing Street. It's a top-level clear-out. More people on the outside potentially fulfilling Dominic Cummings' roles at some point in the future by being able to brief journalists about the goings-on inside Downing Street. He's still very much in the danger zone. So this too will have its role in the whole Brexit issue, albeit very much a sideshow as far as his main political concern goes. Oh yeah, very much sideshow for for Boris Johnson, uh, also for the European Union looking in at what's going on over here. They must be wondering who is our interlocutor. So again, going back to what we were discussing earlier, there's no real incentive for the EU to hurry up negotiations here because uh, they're not going to get a decision out of Boris Johnson, frankly. He's spending all of his waking hours fighting his internal party battles and trying to make it look like he's on top of affairs in the country and internationally going off to Ukraine during the week uh, for a quick visit there, for example. Uh, But, you know, he literally doesn't have the time for Brexit and making big calls about doing deals with the EU. uh, It seems very unlikely that he'd want to do that. So what is the incentive for the EU to rush? Tony mentioned the uh, Liz Truss's Uh, incentives here which appear to be stall the ball don't go for a a deal now because you don't want to annoy the uh, Brexit or right wing of the party Uh, there's really not much to be gained by tying up a a lot of your own although if that wasn't a consideration it would be a very good time to do a deal at a time when it would be very much out of the public focus yeah but it's again if you get into a, a straightforward electoral race Uh, between somebody who's just cut a deal with the EU and somebody who hasn't cut a deal with the EU for the very simple reason it's not their job, i.e. Rishi Sunak, uh, but he can quite easily point the finger at her and say, ah, can you really trust this person on Brexit? I am pure and untainted by having cut a deal or no deal with the European Union. You can't trust this, uh, trust, trust. So uh, easy for him to say, uh, something she has to be careful about. And again, is there any incentive for her to rush into a deal Probably not. Right. Probably not. Are, are we back from the EU's point of view, Tony, to a version of what pertained during Theresa May's tenure towards the end of what's the point of cutting a deal with this incumbent when their t- time may be running out? Yeah, I mean, that that's really the, the thinking uh, of Brussels at the moment. I mean, look, to be honest, the EU would love to get a deal. I mean, they, they are, frankly, sick and tired of the Northern Ireland Protocol and the fact that this is still ongoing. And I've noticed, actually, there are fewer and fewer officials in Brussels who are dealing with this in any in-depth kind of way. I mean, all of the focus at the moment is on Ukraine and sanctions and EU security. Um, I mean, this is, you know, yes, Maros Shevchevich is still beavering away patiently and there are meetings twice weekly of Brexit coordinators from member states and they get briefed on the what's happening with the technical talks and what's happening with the political talks between Truss and, and Shevchevich. Um, they would love to get this done and you know they 
you will recall yeah. that last year Mr. Shevchevich said he hoped this could all be done by Christmas. Well, well frankly, uh, as you mentioned, Ukraine, there there are better uses to which EU-UK channels could be put than endlessly discussing the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yeah, I mean, this this is true, but I mean, at a wider level, the, you know, the, the whole question of the strategic security relationship between Britain and the European Union, how they cooperate on foreign policy, uh, is just going to take time because the UK deliberately asked for that whole sphere of policy to be kept out of the trade and cooperation agreement. Uh, David Frost didn't think that should at all be part of a treaty. Um, so there's no scaffolding there for both sides to, to start finding ways to cooperate and, and think together. And of course, as we've said before, you know, the, the Ukraine crisis has provided no end of opportunities for Brexiteers in London to trumpet Britain's response to Ukraine in contrast to the EU's response, which has been divided. You've had a lot of criticism of Germany. Uh, Italy as well has close ties and, you know, that it's not been a happy story for the European Union uh, by any means. Um, uh, so, you know, everything in terms of that sphere of potential cooperation is simply caught up in the sort of Brexit negotiation aftermath and, and the, the toxic mood in uh, in London. Right. Of course, we've been talking about things that have got buried in the political agenda further down the running order, Sean. The Brexit Freedoms Bill, which sounds very brave, ambitious and boosterish, died a bit of a death, did it? Well, there was this uh, document, about 100 pages. Um, hardly anybody's read it, to be honest. It, it you have, really have you? Died. Uh, certainly not. I was busy. I was working. <laughs> I was, this was the day that Sue Gray's report dropped, don't forget. Uh, so, you know, nobody was paying any attention to anything else that was getting published right. that day. And this thing kind of slipped out with, with vague promises of how great uh, Brexit is going to be in the future uh, and all kinds of new freedoms that Britain apparently has, like putting... Uh, crown marks on the side of pint glasses and doing other things that they've always been able to do anyway as EU members hasn't been treated at all seriously here Uh, it's not even red meat for the base it's a kind of a corn substitute meat Um, nobody believes in the thing at all Uh, and basically it got zero coverage Tony only foreigners seem to be interested in this which brings us to Tony Connolly in Brussels did you read it (laughs) I I didn't read it but I was following some of the trade and and, uh, policy nerds on Twitter uh, one of the first things that people p- picked on when it was released was the fact that it was claiming that one of the Brexit freedoms that British people could now enjoy was getting married on a cruise ship. Uh, and nobody has been able to find the EU prohibition on getting married uh, on a cruise ship. Another line which drew quite a bit of derision was the fact that uh, it, it would allow the UK to bring in new digitizations for export control certificates. Uh, now, these are the export control certificates that you're going to need because of Brexit. So somebody said it's like it's like saying cutting yourself is a great idea because then you can get a plaster. Um, so again, you know, there are a lot of things, areas where the UK can and will diverge, uh, such as IT, uh, uh, AI as well, gene editing. You know, we've talked about this before. But I think by and large, people are saying that those spheres of potential divergence and innovation that the UK could embrace will still not make up for the huge loss in trade with their biggest and nearest trading partner, the European right. Union. So and you, on that front... You talked to somebody who did read it, did you? Somebody, right. yes. 
the UK and a changing Europe. It's a leading think tank uh, looking at uh, Brexit and post-Brexit issues. They have done a paper on how the manufacturing sector in the UK has been doing one year after Brexit. And that was written by, among other people, Professor David Bailey of the University of Birmingham. And I've been talking to him about what he has found in the manufacturing sector one year after Brexit. David, you, you wrote um, a very detailed piece for UK and a Changing Europe on manufacturing in the UK one year after Brexit took effect. I mean, how would you, in a nutshell, sort of characterise the, the complexion of UK manufacturing in, in 2022? What, what, what does it look like? Well, clearly COVID has had a big impact in terms of disruption over the last year. But also manufacturing is adjusting still in terms of dealing with the, the, the Brexit Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Remember that the Prime Minister claimed that the TCA eliminated non-tariff barriers. That isn't the case. And in fact, non-tariff barriers are a big deal for UK manufacturing. It's had an impact on trade. And in talking to companies, we find it's had an impact on smaller firms in particular. And the impact on trade is probably going to impact most on lagging regions, in turn making levelling up even more difficult. So this is important because you know, manufacturing is still significant for the UK economy. Formally, it may only account for 10%, but its its real significance is greater than that. You know, 45% of UK exports, nearly two-thirds of private sector research and development, and it, manufacturing pays good wages. So the fact that the, the Brexit and the, the trade deal that Johnson negotiated is having a significant impact on manufacturing in terms of extra costs, I think is a cause for concern. And when we talk about manufacturing, like what, what are the big sectors in the UK that, that, you, you, that come to mind? Well, if we think about manufacturing in the UK, there's a few sectors that really account for most of the value added. So if we think about automotive, pharmaceuticals uh, and aerospace, those three in particular account for a lot of the, the value added in manufacturing. But we could also add in chemicals and in sort of numerical terms, actually food and drink is the biggest manufacturing sector in the UK. And of course, that's been particularly impacted by some of these additional costs that have come in in terms of the trade deal. OK, so when we talk about the friction and the problems, I guess we can break that down a little bit. I mean, there's obviously customs, formalities, the, the non-tariff barriers that you mentioned as well. Um, I, I guess we could talk about the supply chain. We can talk about labour. Uh, and you mentioned chemicals there. Obviously, there's the whole question of exiting the REACH uh, regulatory orbit uh, and, and the implications for the industry there. Um, let's start with customs and, and other formalities. Like, where's the pinch point? What, what do manufacturing companies have to deal with now that they didn't before Brexit? In very simple terms, lots of customs declarations, which could cost anywhere in the UK economy between £7.5 and £15 billion pounds a year just in doing these customs declarations. So firms previously didn't have to do these to import and export uh, to and from the EU. They've now come in and, and have come in properly and in a big way. And what we're seeing on top of the actual form filling is the fact that it's taking time to actually get through the key trading points. Think of Dover and Calais, for example. Anything that re increases the time of processing means that fewer lorries can get through. That's why we're seeing long tailbacks on both sides of the borders. So there's the direct costs of the customs forms, customs declarations, 
But there's also the disruption, the fact that things are taking to longer to get through and the uncertainty, which means that manufacturing then has to stockpile. So they've had to spend more resources on stockpiling components. That's particularly an issue because of these supply chains that are very closely interlinked between the UK and the EU after decades of, of membership with components crossing borders many times. So direct and indirect costs coming from customs. You talked about the automotive sector there. You know, I think we talked a lot about that in the run-up to Brexit and during the negotiations. I think that was an issue that Theresa May was particularly concerned about, the just-in-time supply chain um, phenomenon that exists because of the single market. How disruptive has Brexit been to that and, and are automotive companies adapting? So what we saw is during... Uh, sort of 2020, car companies had to shut down production several times as various sort of deadlines loomed and they, they were concerned about what would happen to their supply chains. They then ran up, uh, they built up stockpiles uh, in preparation for Brexit, given that they were concerned about what would happen post the trade deal. Since then, of course, they've been really affected by COVID. So output in the industry is down in particular because of the shortage of semiconductors, a kind of long COVID that is impacting on the industry. But there's also a Brexit impact. So if you looked at car production in 2021, for example, it, it's, it's below a million units at very low levels historically. That's partly about the semiconductor issue, but also because we've seen the closure of the Honda plant at Swindon uh, in 2021, and that's taken out a significant chunk of production. Now, Honda closed for all sorts of reasons, but to me, Brexit uncertainty was one of the factors why they shut the plant, because they weren't able to make decisions about investment, because at the time, there was so much uncertainty around Brexit. I mean, with a year of lived experience now under everybody's belt, what do you think are the thought processes in going through the chief executives of those big manufacturing companies? Do they just try and weather the storm? Or do you think they're reconsidering their continued future in the UK? Um, or do they think it's just a question of time to adapt to the new realities? It's a mixed picture. I mean, overall, UK exports the EU down by 14% and UK imports from the EU down by 24%. Now, what we're seeing then is our kind of value chains actually being rejigged over time. So remember when the UK first left, there was a big impact on trade. There was an immediate impact, then some recovery, but trade is down considerably. So firms having to think about where they source from, uh, where they import into the UK to try and avoid bottlenecks, but also supply chains being redrawn. And I think that's impacting particularly on smaller companies who are struggling with the cost of customs declarations. And even more than that, things like rule of origin rules, which where you have to show local content to avoid having to pay a tariff. Now, what we saw last year was, you know, over 70 percent of firms were able to get zero tariff because they could show that they meet rules of origin rules. But, you know, there are some firms for whom simply that's just too much cost. So for some firms will actually be paying a tariff rather than going through all the complications of actually engaging in rules of origin documentation. So supply chains are getting redrawn and that's a kind of the long run impact of, of Brexit. If you think about it, we've put back in place barriers to trade. They're non-tariff barriers, but that will mean over time less growth in trade between the UK and the EU and supply chains are going to get redrawn and that's a long run process of adjustment.
Are companies relocating to to the single market or opening subsidiaries to try and get around some of these problems? Yeah, we are seeing that. We are seeing some firms who are opening operations in the EU because they find it then easier to move their components or goods to that operation. And then once they are there, then distribute it in, in the EU. In other cases, we've seen some um, supply chain companies stop ordering from the UK in, in one case that I've come across because this, this, the firm in the UK is finding it difficult to get the products out of the UK without disruption and meet the time requirements that are very tight inside of just-in-time rules. So, you know, I think we're seeing a rejigging of supply chains in the UK and the EU. My fear is that we're going to see more of a flow from the UK to the EU than vice versa. So you may have British-based companies sourcing more in the UK to avoid uh, issues around just-in-time, but we're going to see European companies sourcing more in the EU. And because that market's bigger, I think the net flow is going to be greater that way. So that's just a basic turning away of, of trade and, and, and a sort of dismantling of established trading patterns. Yes, that's right. And that's, that's exactly what the, the economists predicted. They would say that over time, if you put in place barriers to trade, you will see over time less growth in trade and a, a redrawing of supply trade uh, supply chains and uh, trading patterns over time. Great. Now, what impact is Labour having? Um, when I say Labour, I don't mean the Labour Party. I mean, uh, you know, human resources, people working, logistics, truck drivers, skilled workers. The British government has obviously highlighted the impact of COVID on the the various upheavals in the labour market, but obviously Brexit is having an effect as well. Is that eating into the health of the manufacturing sector? Yes, that's having an impact as well. And, you know, it's a combination. So if we look, for example, at HGV drivers who you need to move products around, including components, partly it's been about COVID and fewer workers being uh, passing the test to become qualified. Partly it's been about Brexit and workers simply returning to the EU and not coming back. So it's you know, it's a kind of a double whammy in that sense. Government is putting in more effort to try and attract workers back from the EU, but with very limited uh, impact. What is interesting, as my colleague Jonathan Portes at the UK and the Change in Europe has shown, is actually the UK has put in place a pretty liberal uh, immigration regime in order to attract people into the UK from outside the EU. So that those new immigration rules should allow firms to fill long-term skill gaps with immigrant labour, although visa and related costs can still be high. Short-term labour mobility is covered to an extent by the agreement, but we are seeing disruptions to labour flows causing problems, like a lack of HGV drivers, and also um, issues as well going forwards around the lack of recognition, uh, mutual recognition of qualifications, so that could be an issue in the future. Right, and of course the, the government has just embarked on its Brexit Freedoms Bill, um, unleashing the potential of Brexit, according to Boris Johnson. Um, how much will deregulation help the UK manufacturing sector? Uh, I think that's an interesting one. I think on the whole, there's very little demand for uh, a change in regulations amongst the uh, manufacturers in the UK. So industries maintain that divergence would be harmful with very little countervailing benefit. And because of that, very little divergence has happened as yet. So, you know, uh, automotive firms, 
aerospace, pharmaceuticals, they don't want to see considerable divergence because it's going to be an extra cost and the risk of having to comply with two different systems. So we're in a position whereby the UK has left the EU. Uh, there's been a hit to trade. We have the right to diverge, but in fact, very little has happened because manufacturers think it will probably be costly. Finally, David, I mean, we're obviously still in the post-negotiation phase and things have been quite toxic between the UK and the EU over the past year, longer, I guess. Is there a prospect that when the dust settles, that both sides could agree changes to or additions to the trade and cooperation agreement that would benefit the UK manufacturing sector? Or do you think the UK government is still so ideologically wedded to a hard Brexit that that may not happen for some time or perhaps it might have to wait for another government? I certainly think the current government is. I think it may require you know a new parliament and a new government uh, to be able to think like that. Uh, but I certainly think the trade and cooperation agreement it, it was really important because it avoided a no trade deal scenario and that would have been hugely disruptive for certain manufacturing sectors. I think we we might even have seen, for example, the mass car industry in the UK wiped out by the existence of tariffs. So it, it was fun, even though it was a thin deal, it was fundamentally important and it is something that can be built on in the future. So, you know, a future government may have a different view about the relationship with Europe. There is something to build on. There are also things that can be done, I think, to ameliorate some of the costs. Um, so, for example, there's a discussion about a single trade window whereby you can join up databases between the UK and the EU. Now, that's, that's seen as an opportunity. It's an opportunity to try and mitigate some of the costs. OK, so let's, let's remember where we are. We've lumped a whole load of extra costs on business. We need to find ways to try and minimise that. OK, that's Professor David Bailey from the University of Birmingham. We're, the clock is against us, folks. So can we look ahead to the coming week? Sean, what's coming up for, for you on this front? Or is it, again, the only thing on high on the agenda is the political survival of the UK Prime Minister. Yep, that's about it, Colm. I mean, we're recording this show on Friday afternoon and uh, who knows what's going to have happened by this evening, let alone by next week. Uh, But it's all party gate and resignations. Who's in, who's out, what political chaos there is, whether Rishi Sunak fully pushes the go button on his uh, apparently operational campaign to uh, become the next leader of the Conservative Party, whether enough letters arrive in the 22 committee, all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, if there's any Brexity stuff, it'll be in the, the margins of the margins of the margins. Really, political London ain't at all focused on Brexit. It's just an occasional slogan. Right. Well, at least this podcast is. Tony, what's coming up uh, for you in the coming week on this front, if anything? Yeah, Brexity-wise, well, Liz Truss and uh, Maro Shevchich will meet again uh, on the 11th of February. That's next Friday. Uh, we'll try and bring you the latest on that in the podcast. I think that should be in London because uh, they tend to alternate. And, you know, again, I'm told that technical teams from both sides are working away, especially on the customs side of things. A um, lot of work there, but still no no sign of a breakthrough. Really, all the gravity and energy in Brussels is on Ukraine. Uh, Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, is going to Washington to meet Joe Biden on Monday. 
Uh, there's going to be an EU-US trade con uh, energy council in Washington at the same time. A lot of talk about how to replace Russian gas if they turn it off the taps in the event of sanctions and invasion. And on sanctions, yeah, still an awful lot of work going on at EU level on potential sanctions against Russia. Those are highly secretive, highly confidential uh, discussions, as you can imagine, uh, individual ambassadors from different EU countries are being brought in by the Commission to talk through what sectors they are most likely to look at in terms of sanctions and what the blowback will be against the European economy if those sanctions are visited upon Russia in the event of an invasion. Okay, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungain, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RT's Correspondent in London. From me, Vincent Kearney, RT's Northern Editor in Belfast. And for me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels, thanks for listening.